0: Hey, welcome to Win The Shift, a podcast for when life and faith go off script. My name is Michael Frost, and today on the podcast, I talk with the Reverend Frank Ritchie. And if you are familiar at all with the podcast over the last few months, you'll know that what we've been talking about, uh, uh, toxic church cultures, uh, abuse of power within church spaces, and in particular within mega church spaces. And, and part of the reason for that, uh, doing so in, in our context here in New Zealand, is that in this part of the world, there have been a number of uh, spaces, megachurches, that have, uh, I guess, having held themselves up as exemplars of, of sort of ideal church culture and ideal church models, have come under a lot of scrutiny in recent times because of the number of stories flowing out of them. Uh, one of those has been Arise Church in New Zealand uh, in the work of David Ferrier has been instrumental in telling a lot of the stories of, of people and their experiences there. And since that time, and certainly the reporting has extended into the mainstream media as well, we've also just heard, as you'll know, such a volume of stories from different contexts. And even from people outside of Australia and New Zealand and the UK and North America and so on, just talking about how similar um, the, the challenges and the problems we're seeing are across so many of these spaces that move in, in similar networks f- to each other. Uh, so Frank Ritchie was involved, some of you may know, in the external review team that was brought in to um, to review Arise Church. And as a part of that, he contributed to the review, of course, and was the author of A Theological and Cultural Reflection. And I suppose what's of interest to me here is not, just specifically the reflection about that one particular space but actually how so much of what he wrote about in that piece relates to wider contemporary evangelical pentecostal kind of church growth culture whether that be in smaller churches that are aspiring to be to be those bigger churches or or the or the bigger ones themselves um, so much of what he writes about there is you know is is translatable across a number of different spaces and so I thought it would be great to talk to Frank. And it was, it was great to talk to Frank. And this is that conversation. So we we use that kind of report, I suppose, as a bit of a springboard into talking about those issues, uh, about this cultural moment in in sort of the life of the church, especially in New Zealand, and hopefully uh, elsewhere also. And, and so uh, our conversation is kind of wide ranging in that sense. And also some reflections on his own experience of uh, leading and guiding a faith community, what that looks like, how we can continue to experiment and explore different ways of going about doing church. They don't have to be sort of trapped within that very one particular narrow stream of the tradition. So it's a great conversation, and I know, I'm sure, you'll find it to be a helpful one if you're wrestling with any of these issues or or trying to think your way through them. Um, Before we get to that, just a couple of quick notes. You can, of course, send us feedback and let us know how you're finding these conversations, what makes you think about the stories. You might want to share or questions you might want to ask. You can get in touch. Feedback at theshift.com And, of course, you can support In The Shift through Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash shift. Uh, you can throw us a few bucks a month to help help make this thing a little more sustainable over the longer term. And, uh, and also you'll get access as a patron of the show to our Discord, which is an online community site for supporters of the podcast. Uh, and we're having some wonderful conversations there with a great crew engaged in good chat, good honest chat. So uh, you're more than welcome to do that. So with all of that said, this is episode 67 of In The Shift. Let's get into it. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by Reverend Frank Ritchie. Frank is a, a church minister in the Wesleyan Methodist tradition, a media chaplain, a radio host, a podcast host sometimes, and also the author of a recently published theological and cultural reflection into some of what has emerged into the public domain in relation to Arise Church. Um, and there are a number of implications in, in this work that I think uh, relate to more than just one particular space, but to really the conversation that needs to take place uh, for the church more broadly uh, in the present moment. So, uh, welcome, Frank. Thank you for joining me. It's a pleasure. And I it's should say, good. we are in. Now we're on your territory here.
1: You so. are. You're in. The, you're in the studio that uh, that I've recorded a number of podcasts in. And the work that I do, and the organisation that I work for, lots of recording happens right here. So uh, you're sitting in the seat that I would normally sit in. I've sat in. The, I'm sitting in the seat where Mike McRoberts has sat, Paula Penfold, a whole bunch of really well-known New, G- New Zealand journalists. Uh, Guy and Espina, and we could work work our way through them.
0: Well, I feel like perhaps this is in the shift really starting to make the big time. You know, <laughs> there's a producer. <laughs> there is. You know. And uh, that's
1: outstanding. Thank you, Josh. he's being a bit dicey because he's hit record. He's going to wander away while we chat, and then he's going to come back at the end, and he's going to hit the stop button and hope that everything went all right. Look, give me another 12 months, and if I can get the uh, In The Shift listener numbers
0: soaring, he won't dare to do that next time. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So anyway, yes, let's get to it. Um, I'd love for you to, if if you don't mind, talk a bit about your own history, really, into, into the kind of work you're doing now. Uh, whether that relates to the the work you're doing in, in helping a leader or leading a church and also in in some of the media chaplaincy space and other in broadcasting that you work in How, how's that kind of journey played out for you what has led you to this moment
1: yeah it's a it's a colorful journey uh, I mean the church stuff starts when I was a kid I was five years old and my mum got introduced into church life it was a uh, the church that she got introduced to was I would say hyper Pentecostal like I would identify as a quiet Pentecostal uh, this was hyper the whole Toronto Pensacola thing had been going on in in Canada it swept mm. its way around around into New Zealand. So there were strange experiences in that church environment. I remember uh, people barking like dogs as a as a move of the spirit. There was prophecy going on all the time. My mother was mentally unwell. She suffers from mild schizophrenia. Uh, so she sometimes hears voices in her head, doesn't know what's real and what isn't. Suffers from what we popularly know as split personality disorder. For her, that would exhibit as her flying into a rage, but she wouldn't feel the rage. She'd just kind of observe observe it happening. Uh, clinical depression. So you, as you can imagine in that hyper-Pentecostal environment, you can almost anticipate how that was interpreted. It was demonic. There were uh, exorcisms that would go on at people's places after church when I was a kid. I'd watch all of that happen. And it just left me angry. And because of my mother's mental illnesses, she would hop from church to church to church. So uh, as I grew up, I faithfully went along to church. And so I have experienced the whole breadth of the Christian community from hyper Pentecostal through to Catholic. We did a stint in the Mormon church when I was an intermediate and I got baptized as a Mormon. Mm. I was uh, christened as an infant in an Anglican church. We did the Salvation Army, Baptist, Presbyterian, you name it, I've done it. Um, so if one of them is the one true church, you've got it covered. <laughs> yes, I've probably off somewhere. <laughs> I've probably been baptised in it. <laughs> I've been baptised lots. So that was my church experience growing up. And then when I got serious about my my faith, and I got past the anger, and I would, if I was to condense the story, when I when I actually met Jesus, uh, I uh, was in a little town called Tiaraha. And uh, through my teen years, we'd been to every church in Tiaraha. And so I didn't want to walk back into any of them because that would be embarrassing. And the apostolic movement had started up a church in Tiaraha like the Sunday before I kind of had that epiphany. And so I just walked in there uh, and then spent a while in the apostolic uh, movement. And it was, a, it was a wonderful church, that little church. And it, it took me on a real journey. And eventually I was encouraged to think about theological study which opened up this whole new world that I uh, loved. When I left school, I'd taken the first job in the paper that I thought I could do, which was painting and decorating. So I spent, I did my painting and decorating apprenticeship, uh, got my trade certificate, spent many years painting. And then uh, when I went off to do theological study, I started milking cows to pay my way through. And so people in church would give me jobs, milking cows and helping on the farm so I could pay my way through. And I was studying, working for the church, as an intern, uh, and then milking cows. But it wasn't a kind of run-you-into-the-ground kind of internship. It was involvement in the church and good, solid theological study through what was then Bible College of New Zealand. And I had dreamt when I was in high school about being a radio announcer. But because I'd stuffed around, I just gave up on that idea but I had a friend who was producing a talkback show on Life FM on Sunday evenings called The Green Room. And uh, initially it was a rotating panel of people. And he asked me one day, I was in youth leadership, uh, I was studying theology, and he asked me one day if I'd like to come up and just do, uh, as a guest and just do a show on men's issues. I'm like, sure, I'm a guy. (laughs) I can do that. I can talk about guy stuff. So went up, did the show, loved it, I had the cassette of that show for ages. I listened to it back to it a number of times, and it just sounded—I sounded dreadful. <laughs> uh, but they liked it, so they asked if I'd want to be on the rotating panel. And so I said yes. Uh, and then it got to the point where they're like, "Okay, you're pretty good. So, do you want to be the host when you're on?" Uh, and I said, "Sure." Uh, and then they decided they wanted to take it from a panel to one person every single Sunday that people could get to know, and so they asked if I would like to do that. I said yes. So that that was very early 2000s, probably 2002. I've been around radio for about 20 years now, Mm. Uh, and it kicked off eight years of talkback, uh, which that era of talkback, especially the kind of first half of the 2000s, for the Christian community was significant. Uh, civil unions were going through. There was a rise of destiny. The Enough is Enough march. Uh, City Impact was really making a, making a bit of a splash at the time as well. Uh, there was prostitution law reform. And I was in my early 20s, early to mid-20s, with a microphone to that broadcasts nationwide mm-hmm. uh, to a Christian audience grappling with that stuff. And initially I thought... I thought it was exciting. I thought I was just being given a microphone to have really interesting conversations with interesting people and very quickly discovered that uh, some people hated me. There were people literally praying that I would die uh, because of some of the questions I was asking. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's an intense level of, um, of uh, hatred. Yeah, it was. It was intense. And I very quickly had to come to terms with that. Do mm. I back off into the shadows and slink away, or do I keep doing what I feel like I was built to do? So I kept doing what I felt like I was built to do. I uh, ended up doing their night show for two years as well, their drive show on Life FM for two years, and then went to work for Tier Fund for a number of years uh, in international aid and development. And then moved my way back into media. In 2014, we started Media Chaplaincy in New Zealand. I felt a sense of, I'll use the word call. Cool. I felt a sense of call cool back into media, but going back as a full-time announcer when I'd been ordained as a Wesleyan minister didn't feel like quite the right fit. So I sat down with a number of people and we looked at the media landscape and went, where's the care? Uh, you know, you've got people who are involved in a whole lot of traumatic issues here they're covering traumatic stories. The change in the media environment is hard, and the Christian community by and large seems relatively hostile to, to them. So, but we knew those people, because of our work with the likes of NewsTalk ZB and other media entities, we knew these people and we really cared. So we started up our media chaplaincy. So I've been doing media chaplaincy now for uh, what's that? six, eight years, mm-hmm. uh, and that's been a, a slow build really privileged position sitting down having coffee with journalists uh, media personnel helping them process life it was really significant when the shooting happened in Christchurch mm. uh, what we do um, and I also host this show now on News Talk ZB that I've been doing for probably about five years every Sunday evening 6 p.m. Uh, it's a bit of light-hearted fun usually but again Speaking to a lot of people, I think our, and I don't say this to boast, but I think uh, our latest rating said that that show gets about 37,000 listeners every single week. The chance for, uh, to speak into their world uh, is a real privilege. And they're listening from many different worldviews from all over the place. Radio's a, radio's a privilege, much like podcasting. You know, you mm, get into mm. spaces where you and I wouldn't normally be able to walk into. We're there because people are choosing to listen.
0: Yeah, it is um, the fact that people choose to switch you on. Yeah,
1: you know, it is a real, it's a real privilege, and I think
0: uh, one of the interesting things about Talkback, which I do listen to from time to time, uh, depending on how much resilience I feel, (laughs) uh, is that it it is very egalitarian in some respects. Although you kind of have the power to switch someone off, of course, but you just you do. There's no bubble when it comes to talk back in that sense.
1: Yeah, um, it's you know. the it's like the precursor to social media, the mm. democratization of opinion. Uh, and it can be a rough and ready place talk back because you're p- dealing with people who have not been trained to smooth over their thoughts and to communicate their thoughts in a way that's going to get everybody on side with them. They just throw it on the table whatever it is. Now, our show's a little different because the other guys do the the heavy lifting during the week. So ours is, ours is more anecdotal, laughs, a bit of fun usually.
0: Yeah. So I know you also um, lead a faith community in, oh, in yes. Hamilton. Yes. I forgot to um, mention that. <laughs> <laughs> Lest those people uh, start praying for your demise, did you want to mention uh,
1: just briefly what you do there as well? yeah I, w- I won't make that really brief and thanks for listening to me <laughs> prattle on because there is a story there is a story to it. I grew up saying I would never be a minister. No uh, same yes yeah and I, I since reflect back on that and go what child in their right mind says that <laughs> unless there is a prompting towards it. Uh, and my wife before we got married, I, I promised her I would never be a minister because she'd grown up around ministry family and she said she'd never be a minister's wife. Uh, of course, that all shifted eventually. And then when I did give in, I was like, but I'll never be a local church pastor because the Wesleyans were uh, gracious and creative enough to see what I was doing in radio and then Tear Fund as mission work. So they ordained me in that capacity. Uh, but then I started, started to feel a pull, I think because of my work with Tear Fund, uh, thinking that. You know, approaching justice on a global scale is all well and good, but the real stuff happens when you're involved in people's daily lives. Mm. And the the local church seemed to, and still seems to me, to be one of the most hopeful expressions of that when it's done well. Um, So I found a sense that, oh, okay, local church, okay, I need to be involved in local church um, leadership, local church ministry. So I was like, well, I'll just wait till some cushy job comes up at a Wesleyan church where a minister vacates. Uh, but I'd gone on a massive journey into a much more contemplative form of faith uh, and wanted liturgy, wanted silence, wanted something that was really simple and thought that would be a healthy expression in the time that we find ourselves in. And so I realized that if I was placed in a local church that was not that, I would work really hard to conform them to that. They would work really hard to push back against that, mm. and it would just turn into a complete mess. Hamilton didn't have a Wesleyan Methodist church, and we felt my wife and I had come from there, so we felt a call, sense a call back to Hamilton. So we started up a really simple faith community that is seems to be a safe place for people who have felt burnt out in other spaces but still want to keep exploring that journey of uh, faith. Our Sundays are a liturgy. Holy Communion every week is the is the high point. Uh, and I love what we do. I get paid a, a day a week. So my people know that they only get a day a week. Uh, in order to sustain that, I don't do things like write a sermon. We discuss the scriptures together on a Sunday. So everybody has a voice. Um, and I like it mm. I like it a lot uh, we called it commoners and we call it commoners because I was a bit sick and tired of the language of exceptionalism around church circles you can be everything mm. uh, you can have everything and seeing a lot of people not live up to them and then feel like something was wrong in their life so the word commoners just means this is for everybody uh, everybody has a space here this is a church for ordinary folk like you and me so you didn't call it, you know, dreams to the power of infinity church or
0: something? <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> no. Um, that's really, it's great to hear that. And I want to come back perhaps in the conversation to, to the experience, because I think um, one of the things that is really important in this current moment is for many people, especially those, you know, who you're talking about who have found their way to, to your community, who have had difficult experiences, perhaps in church life. um are not always you know people are not always aware that there are in fact other ways to go about exploring you know church other than the one that they've experienced and sometimes that's because the one they've experienced has told them this is the only way to go about it that really matters and so i think it's now more than ever perhaps we need to be talking about all of the different ways in which people
1: are experimenting and exploring and and trying stuff so Yeah, that's just to to touch Mm. on that, that's an approach I've taken sitting down with people for years. For some reason, I end up sitting down with people who are struggling with their faith quite regularly. Um, And so one of the things that I've often said to them, and usually they're coming out of a certain type of stream of the Christian faith. And so uh, usually I'll just say, hey, how much do you know about liturgy? How much do you know about the church calendar? How much do you know about that Catholic church down the road or the Anglican church or the Presbyterian church or all of these others? Uh, Usually there's absolutely no awareness. So I'll encourage them to go and have a look because the Christian community is so broad and diverse that there's probably a space here where you feel like you could keep going on that that journey. Mm. Yeah, one of the things when I first entered theological study was just to realize,
0: oh, there are Christians who think very differently to me yeah. and are still called Christians. Yeah. Um, and that was, you know, a shock in a good way because it suddenly opened my eyes to the mm. fact that there was this broad tradition to engage with. Um, as I think many people will know, certainly from New Zealand, you have this year been involved in, as a part of the review team uh, into a story that, that really came out or a series of stories that came out in relation to a, to a large church, a rise church, uh, down in Wellington, although also around the country. Um. But I suppose what's of interest to me here in this conversation is perhaps some of how what we're seeing play out in, in, in that particular story um, relates to the bigger conversation we're, we're having at the moment and certainly what we've been trying to have on in the shift over the last period of time. Is, you know, there, there's something going on at the moment and, and, mm-hmm. in terms of um, perhaps the, the volume of the stories kind of pouring out and and it feels a little bit like the dams kind of burst in that sense, you know, and obviously the work of someone like a David Farrier who, who started publishing, you know, accounts of these stories. Um, And we've certainly heard stories from a huge number of people from a number of different spaces that have a lot of commonality to them in the way in which they go about things. Um, And some of those stories are kind of pretty harrowing Mm. Um, and, and just the stories as well of just of burnout and of, you know, all of that kind of stuff. Um, as you've been kind of seeing that unfold and from the various sort of perspectives that you hold in all of this, um, are you surprised by the volume of stories or are you surprised by, by how much of this is kind of pouring out at the moment? What's your kind of general response to what you're seeing happen at the
1: moment? No, I'd say I'm absolutely not surprised. Mm. Uh, I am surprised at the catalyst. That it, I'm surprised that it took, though, I, or again, I'm not really surprised um, that it took David Farrier. Mm. Uh, there are many of us who have been, and you'll be one of them, who have been sounding the warning bells on on some of this stuff for many years. I mean, I think about some of the very early conversations I was having on The Green Room on Life FM back in the early 2000s uh, are reflective of some of those conversations that are happening now. Mm. And there's a sense of relief that it's being heard. My, my big concern... Coming into this, though, was that people would imagine uh, they would they would scapegoat a certain type of church, that this is a certain type of church. So when I wrote my theological and cultural review of Arise, one of the things I worked really hard to do was to not uh, move away from the challenge for Arise, because it has some significant challenges, but to help people notice or hear this in a much broader sense that some of the challenges that they're facing are inherent in all of our churches. Like I think about my church, for instance, Uh, was a church plant only six years ago, and it was planted by my wife and I. There wasn't a team involved. What we did was really tiny. Uh, My initial budget was petrol to get from Auckland down to Hamilton to do a little contemplative service, buy some grape juice, a loaf of bread so that we could do communion and a couple of candles. Um, But because it started with just us, there's the danger that I'm the central personality even in our small mm, church. Mm. And the pandemic has has, I think, entrenched that. So I think there's a danger in even my small church of people seeing this as the thing that Frank and his wife do, and we're here to help them do that. Whereas that's not how I see it. Mm. And we need to we need to shift it. Those dangers exist. Right across the board, when I wrote about honor culture, when I wrote about performance culture, when I wrote about churches, business, like I think those things are inherent across many, many churches. Mm. And I think we're seeing, I think we're having a moment and I think the pandemic has pushed along where that stuff is really being shaken because a lot of people, are, I think because of the pandemic, their detachment from community for a while are assessing where they're at and what it is that they really find to be of value. And if I can bring in my more Pentecostal language, I believe that God is up to something. I Mm. totally believe in the God that looks after his church and the God that will only let certain things slide in his church for a period of time before he goes, okay, enough is enough. And we're going to deal with some of this now. So I think the pandemic shook some uh, theological stuff that we had left sitting off to the side, some of our eschatology and our thinking around end times. I think there were churches that had let some of that just sit off to the side, just ignore it because it's awkward to deal with. And then church meltdowns happened. People left, people got really angry who had bought well and truly into some of that thinking. So I think that was addressed somewhat. And I think, uh, and, uh, again, it's probably liturgical Pentecostal. Some mm-hmm. of that really landed in Lent, uh, last year, and Lent this year was the time where these stories Mm. really came to the fore when it came to Arise, and the floodgates opened on stories of broken people in many churches just started flooding in. I think that's God. I think that's God revealing ourselves to us and going, hey, you need to do better, and we have a chance for that. So not an attack on the church then? No. No, not an attack on the church at all. Um, No, and I I think— I think if we see it like that, then we're missing our own history. Yeah, I mean, I think about the Reformation and I think the questions that the Reformation rightly asked and I think about all the fallout of the Reformation. Again, I bet you there were voices who were crying that that was an attack on the church. Mm. Uh, but when we think about the voices that have most fed into the current conversation that we're having, across the board, it's churches. Churches are now having really healthy conversations because of this. They're looking at how... They do what they do. We're re what it means to be church. That is a healthy conversation. Yeah. It's not an attack. The, um, the sense I get in all of this
0: is that, yeah, I think there are particular challenges, perhaps even temptations that some of the larger churches face that are, that are unique that just come by virtue of, of size by everything being turned up to kind of eleven, you know, in that sense. Um, but like you say, that there are a number of these things that are in fact present in all of our communities to to some degree uh, that we have to wrestle with and have to negotiate. Um, one of the things that has come up a lot, uh, you you wrote about it, uh, obviously, it's something we've been talking about a lot, is is the kind of abuse of power that happens within um, so many religious spaces. In fact, you know, I was even reading more. Um, you know, the news today in Gloria Veil vale community, another very different kind of religious space in which we're seeing stories, not surprisingly, again emerge there. Um, but it's not just confined to yeah large mega church spaces. Um, in fact, all denominations have had, have struggled with abuse of power within their systems. Do you th- what do you think's going on here in in terms of um, do you have a sense as to why Church leaders, in particular, seem to struggle with abuse of power in these spaces. Um, yeah, given given the kind of story of Christian faith that is that should sit at the heart of all of this for us, right? What do you yeah. think is kind of going on there?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I think at the end of the day, we're deeply human, and the struggle for power is a deeply human. Uh, thing, which is why I think uh, the question of discipleship and formation in the way of Jesus should be at the center of who we are and what we do, because I think if you're truly being formed in the way of Jesus, that desire for power is going to be challenged and ultimately, hopefully, ripped away as we engage in humility and service. Uh, but if, if growing our churches is the central thing, And I think, again, right across the board, Mm. I think that's what we've been pursuing. And I think we've been pursuing it for a long time in a certain way of thinking. Uh, If that is what you favor, getting more bums on seats, getting more people raising their hand to give their life to Jesus, seeming to be, though the stats tell us that that there's not a lot lot of longevity to that Mm. when they do raise their hand. But if that's your main desire is to grow your church and to grow your influence then those who seek to exercise power are going to be the ones generally who can deliver that. Mm. Uh, they can deliver the bums on seats. They can deliver the moment when people put their hand up. And sometimes in order to make those things happen, you have to be like a bullet at a gate making decisions that just pushes other people aside. Mm. And so I think in that pursuit of what we've, we've perceived to be success, power has taken over. Uh, and, I mean words like words like influence in our church circles are just there so much, and how do you get influence often in our culture you exercise power, yeah um
0: yeah well it was uh you know certainly I've been out of you know some of the these circles for a while now, but I do know that there was a John Maxwell phrase who was like the the leadership guru yes. for kind of the church growth movement, and his thing was leadership is influence yeah and and so that's essentially saying inf- leadership is power right mm. and and um and I kind of have a fundamental problem problem with that in terms of the way in which I understand the Jesus story, yeah, right?
1: And it's it's seductive. Yeah, oh, like it's very it's attractive. Really seductive. I think about what I do, and I talk uh, about this with my congregation from time to time because they know what I do. Uh, what I the things that I do, and I'm not trying to overstate myself here. They have some status. You know, as I mentioned before, I have a radio show, which in uh, the radio land that I swim in is a tiny audience, 37, but it's 37,000 people. Uh, when I think about the other stuff that I do across a week, weekly I'd be talking to in excess of 50,000 people. That has a certain amount of status. I'm the pastor of a church, it's a very small church, but I'm still the pastor of a church. I sit on the National Council of my denomination. Uh, the people that I sit down with for media chaplaincy, very easy to buy into the status of that and to, to want the influence and to just want it more. I sat in the Voyager Media Awards the other week, um, dressed up in a black suit and a bow tie, looking really swish. I it, saw that photo on, online thanks, and I mate. thought, that guy looks good. Thanks, mate. Uh, and it's again seductive. Mm. Media chaplaincy is one of the sponsors of the Voyager Media Awards. We had a table quite close to the stage and I wanted my name mentioned. I know that it wasn't up for an award, but some of the people who won awards, I sit down with. I wanted my name mentioned. I wanted that influence. I wanted to see that influence and I wanted that power. I wanted media chaplaincy mentioned from the stage by people. It's seductive. Mm. And unless we recognize that, Uh, that's a loaded gun that's going to cause damage if we don't recognize it and we don't critique it in ourselves. Mm. And too often we don't critique it. We just wrap spiritual language around it in order to justify it. This is the influence of the gospel. We are winning souls for Christ. We want the positions of power and influence, and we want the money because that means we get to make Jesus famous. Uh, It's all seductive. And if we don't see it and we don't critique it, we get ourselves in trouble. Make Jesus famous—one of my least favorite phrases. Uh, <laughs> um,
0: uh, the yeah, it's so interesting, and and to think about just the psychological kind of allure of power for all of us, right? And 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 it's very easy to, to critique that allure if you're in a position where where maybe you, you haven't yet got that power, mm-hmm. and then you start to accumulate a little bit. And this is why we see, I think, movements often that start at the margins, that then get a bit of growth, get a bit of success, begin to Gain power suddenly turn into very different kinds of people and very different kinds of institutions because they've got that taste of power and it's it is alluring. It's hard to let go of. Yep. It's awkward to let go of. It's um, you know frustrating to let go of because when you've got that power, you can make things happen. Mm-hmm. And uh, and there's nothing that feels good like being able to make something happen, and especially if you're doing it for God, mm-hmm. and therefore you're making something happen that of eternal value. You can you can kind of baptize your power right in that sense. Yeah. Um, if, if alongside that kind of natural human inclination for power is, you know, this idea of growth, essentially, we started there, creating this fertile soil, if you like, for a justification for that power, mm. the the idea that what we're trying to do here, what all of us are trying to do here, is primarily is grow our churches. Um, what. In the way in which you see church, how does it, how does it push back against, because I get the sense very much so from, from talking with you and from reading your work that you would want to push, push back against that notion that growing our churches is the primary sort of preeminent focus for, for us in, in church life. So how, how do you see perhaps the, the problems with that and, and what's, your, what's your alternative um, <laughs> response, I suppose, to, to what it is churches should be trying to do?
1: Yeah, I think I think the problem with it, and I just want to put on the table that this is not a push against big churches. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's some elements of certain types of big churches that I think are, are dangerous, uh, and I, I think our cultural push to um, put big churches on a pedestal and to want to emulate them and for small churches to then be striving to be those big churches and then to feel like they're failing when they don't manage it and feeling frustrated, uh, I would push against that. But this is not a critique of big churches. But I would say, I think the statistics show us that on average, throughout history and around the globe at the moment, the average church size has been about 70 people. Uh, And Our statistics in New Zealand, the number of people going to churches continues to be on the decline. So God must really stink at what he does then. If that's the case, if globally the average church size has been 70 people for about 2,000 years uh, and big churches are the anomaly, then God's been doing a really poor job for a really long time. Or is it that God actually quite likes that size community, because that size community knits together relatively easily. They all know each other. They know each other's needs. Uh, I think, clearly, if the statistics are right and history tells us that uh, this is what it looks like, then maybe that's God's blueprint for church life, with some anomalies here and there that hold a different uh, different way of being in a different group of people, uh, and if that's the case, then your average small church is a beautiful, beautiful thing uh, where things have to, by necessity, operate differently. And I've completely lost your questions. <laughs> well, it's essentially, you know, in terms of the, what are the,
0: this focus on growth, yeah. um, oh, yes. you know, how does that drive us? What, what's the problem with that and, and what's the alternative for that?
1: Again, I think if you're, if you're driving for growth, you don't have to go very deep. Like, I think most of us could probably, if we've been around church circles for any amount of time, could probably offer the formula on how to grow a church to a good size. And most of that, we might not like to hear it, but most of that is going to be transfer growth from other churches Mm. because the stats tell us that church attendance is on the decline. So we're not actually converting a whole lot of people to the faith in New Zealand. Churches are growing at the expense of, of other churches and you don't have to go very deep. Get yourself a good band, original music. That music has to be exciting. Get yourself a charismatic preacher. Uh, have good welcoming at the door. Make everybody feel extremely welcome. Then have a funnel that they uh, that occupies other parts of their life. So they funnel into, into other things that midweek make their life feel exciting. Give them an amazing experience that they get relatively addicted to and they keep wanting to come back to. You don't have to go very deep in order to mm. do that. Real discipleship is hard graft. It's really hard to measure, uh, and it involves people doing the ordinary and the mundane and the boring day in and day out and recognizing that, that God is there. But it's a lot harder to measure that. It's much easier to measure bums on seats on a Sunday. Uh, so I think the danger is we miss out on the depth of formation. Uh, and I think some of the churches that are doing the best job at that never make it onto the scene to teach others because they don't have the resources to create the books. They don't have the celebrities, so they never, get, they never get noticed. I think about ministers that I know and their people who are doing their stuff week in and week out, faithfully serving each other and their communities. They'll never hit a headline. They'll never make it to a podcast. They'll never be on a radio show. They'll never write a book. But they're wonderful, mm-hmm. wonderful communities there's there's um the aspect where they don't necessarily have the resources to
0: to offer all of that, and then also the reality that if they aren't seen to be growing sufficiently, then why would we have them to if, if growth has become sort of the core value that's shaping us then then why would we want to hear from those people anyway you know let's we we won't invite them to be the conference speaker, yeah uh, and so you know there's there's, there seems to me, as you're talking about that, there's, there's cultural um, aspects to this that are Very much so. wider, right? So this kind of growing equals success, large comes to equal success. Yeah. This, is a, this is a modern capitalist problem. Yeah, <laughs> perpetual sense, right? growth. Yeah, we live, yeah, yeah, we
1: perpetual. live in a society that, uh, that functions on the idea of perpetual growth. Everything has to keep growing all of the time and that the resources to do so are infinite, though they're not, which is why we get economic crashes, because things need to contract so that then we can move back to move back to growth. But we've bought into the same idea in our churches. And people might misunderstand me. This doesn't mean that I don't want people buying into the Jesus story, committing mm-hmm. their life to it. Uh Committing their life to the idea of Jesus as God in the flesh, everything that he that He taught about what it means to be human, seeing the magnitude of the cross and the life that is on offer in the resurrection, I totally want more and more people buying into that. And as churches, we need to be expressing that and inviting people to that to that table. But if it's only about getting them to pray that sinner's prayer and then we move on to get the next person to pray it and we're not focusing on the depth of that journey and the challenge of that journey, then we're missing the boat. Yeah, agreed. <laughs> and,
0: and in a sense, you know, if we're paying attention to the depth and the challenge of the ongoing journey, there's actually something on offer here that is, in a sense... Um countercultural to the the wider, you know instead of instead of the 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 Christian journey being one of essentially all that you get in modern capitalist growth society, but with Jesus, you know um that actually you get an invitation into a into very different and I would argue meaningful kind of kind of life. Um, one of the things that that I think is apparent even as we're talking and that you've wrote about uh, in your review work. Is just about in these kinds of spaces. Um, and again, this is, this is not um, one location at all, but a lack of theological depth mm. that's in um, not the communities so much, although you know we can have that conversation, but but actually the leaders, the people who are responsible for for shaping this. And you know, I grew up in the Pentecostal tradition, uh, where kind of all you need is a call, you know, and, um, and an alter- and a call from God. And then some hands laid on you, and to be filled with the Holy Ghost, and uh, and then and then away you go. You know that's you know what's the phrase? There's something about you know God doesn't call the equipped, but equips the call or something, something like that. Um, do you do, what what problems do you see with the kind of the lack of theological depth within some of these spaces, especially in in those who are at, at multiple levels within these institutions,
1: given the responsibility of of shaping um, people's discipleship lives? Yeah, I think. When there isn't theological depth, I think the fallback position is teaching people self-help, effectively, mm. teaching them just teaching them how to have a better life. And so then we go and we peri- cherry pick the stuff from the Bible that enables that to happen, and we avoid the stuff that is really hard, or we miss the nuance of the stuff that is really hard, uh, and the stuff that is just has a lot of... Colour to it. I can think of a few particular issues where we seem to be very black and white. When actually there's there's stuff to be wrestled with. there. Mm. There is nuance. We, I think, and this is the wider humanity. I think it's reflected when you don't have a lot of theological depth. We buy into good bad arguments. Is it good or is it bad? Uh, is it righteous or is it evil? When actually the, theologically the world is a is a lot more colourful and deeper and richer than that. I think too. When you don't have that theological depth, then when some things hit, they're really hard to grapple with. Mm-hmm. So I, th- I think about lament, for instance, and I think about grief. I mean, how often in a lot of these churches do we really hear lamentations spoken of or the lamenting psalms or the real pain? How often does the depth of confession uh, appear? They don't fit because we're defaulting to self-help generally. So I think when, when you've got theological depth and richness going on, there's the ability to engage in the human experience a whole lot more and to relate that to Jesus and again, to bring Jesus into, into the mix. Uh, it also means that if you don't have that theological depth, you rely on formulas a lot more. Mm. So think about something like evangelism. We could talk about what the word evangelism means and what good evangelism is, but seven steps to peace with God. Uh, You need the formula if you don't have the theological depth Mm. and the theological uh, grounding. Uh, And because in this day and age, a lot of people are getting their theological thinking from YouTube and from Facebook and from all over the place. If you don't have the theological depth in your own leaders, then those minds are going to be co-opted elsewhere. Mm. I think about much of the information and the ideas and the theories that have been flying around during the pandemic. And how many people have struggled to respond to that because there isn't that theological depth? Mm. Yeah, the um, I made the I don't know if
0: it was a mistake or not of uh, of writing a short post about the uh, the vaccines during <laughs> I remember during it. the pandemic, and yeah, it got uh, got a bit of attention there. And um, one one of the things that was so fascinating to me was was why Christians in particular were so um, you know and there are lots of reasons for this I think, but yeah. but why Christians were so drawn to. To certain kinds of conspiracies around a lot of that stuff, but just to yeah, just to all sorts of quite irrational um, stuff, and I and I wonder whether <laughs> being formed and shaped in spaces, you know, week in week out that lack nuance, that lack depth, that that in fact promote kind of overly simplistic yeah formulas, uh, explanation, maybe sometimes sinister explanations, you know, out there in the world for the reasons why things certain things are happening that that it's sort of it made the Christian community a bit ripe for for essentially. Going down the rabbit hole.
1: Yeah, I think about things like uh, eschatology, end times. Mm. That's not what eschatology, that's not all eschatology is, but, you know, if I mention end times, everybody knows what I'm talking about. Yes. For 20 years, I've battled against the Left Behind series, and it is revelatory for some people to find out that there are other ways to think about end times. Mm. uh, And that Revelation is actually an amazing book, but because again there hasn't necessarily been a lot of theological depth in how people have been taught to engage with the book of revelation people either go off on nutty ideas that puts themselves and our generation in the center of that story when it's when we're not uh, or people vacate altogether and they don't they don't grapple with the beauty of revelation is just one example yeah and so what we're seeing it seems to me
0: in a lot of these spaces for a lot of people it's like well my trust has been broken in what I've been, I'm realizing, maybe perhaps sudden, Perhaps it's been a creeping realization or perhaps it's been a sudden realization, depending on the, the kind of crisis maybe someone's experienced in this space. I no longer trust what I'm hearing. Um, that without the modeling of that depth, I mean, what options do I really have other than to you know, probably just walk away from the whole thing in, in a bit of disgust? And Once you realize the system, oh, the formula doesn't work, and if the formula's it, that's yeah. what Christianity is. Then I guess Christianity doesn't work. Uh, yeah, and I, that's an understandable conclusion for someone in that space, right?
1: Yeah, very much so. And I've got I've got people that I count as friends who have ended up in that space. Mm, uh, and then I've got others who are very tentatively holding on to faith, and it really it really saddens me mm. uh, because the the faith story that I know um, is deep and rich and wonderful. Uh, though because of my early experiences of church, it's probably worth putting on the table that when I came back to church and when I committed to ministry, it wasn't because I loved the church. It's because I, f- I did and I do still fully love Jesus. And because of my early experiences of church, I continually expect our churches to stuff it up. That includes my own church. Mm. I expect that there's going to be relational fallout and and friction. So the fact that people would... Walk away from the Jesus story. It really, really guts me. But that's why I think people like yourself having the conversations that you're having and the convo- the wider conversations going on when these fallouts happen are really necessary because it says to people that there are still committed people of faith in this journey. They're just doing it slightly differently. So maybe there's something else that I can explore. One of the most encouraging things that that have happened during this whole saga with Arise and my involvement with it. I published my 16,000 word dissertation (laughs) on a Tuesday morning and I'll put it on the table. I have a a private back channel conversation with the Arise alumni Instagram page. We converse every now and then. Um, I don't agree with everything they put up, uh, but I think they've done a relatively important work uh, as well. And when I published that evening, I was sitting in a really cheap hotel room at the top of Queen Street, like 50 bucks a night, shared bathroom. See, this is why you need to become a mega church pastor, man. None <laughs> of that anymore. Sorry, yeah. carry on. Yeah. <laughs> I was sitting in the room. There's no television in the cheaper option uh, where you have to share the bathroom. So I was just was just sitting on my bed. And I got a message from them. They'd had a couple of people who had read my article Uh, and who wanted some suggestions for churches they could go to in Wellington. And so I offered a couple of options. Then they messaged me a little while later to say that they had some people asking in Auckland as well. That's the most encouraging response I could have Mm. got, that there were people who may have been burned who were exploring how they could be involved in a faith community. That that to me is is everything because – I believe in Jesus and I believe in his church. I know we stuff it up all the time, but I still think it's the best place to journey uh, in order to learn what it means to follow Jesus and to practice love together with others who are doing it as well. The the idea that we sort of stuff it up all the time, in a sense, can sometimes
0: be used as a, therefore we shouldn't worry about any of this because we're just human, you know. Um, But it seems there is perhaps a distinction between spaces that are able to acknowledge that we stuff it up all the time, which is maybe a good start. But also the kind of systemic kind of problems of abuse yeah. that we see within some of these spaces how would you kind of speak to Yeah that yeah idea? when
1: i when i say we stuff it up all the time that that's just a place of honesty yeah in a place of recognition that we will have to deal with this all the time mm. uh that in my own church is going to happen so what do we do when it does happen what do we, I've I've had to deal with people who have have had a bit of friction together in mm. my little community so it's just a question of how we're going to deal with it in a way that is faithful to the gospel, faithful to our humanity, faithful to the powerless and the victims in any Mm. given situation, that gives them agency and the ability to be and to continue on their journey. And for those of us who have power, who have influence, uh, continually being brought down to size uh, as well, and engaging in humility and service and remembering that it's not about us that is a continual process, and when I say we're going to stuff it up all the time, it's with all of that mm. in mind, and being willing to go on that hard journey, not as a way to minimise it. Um, when uh, those people, and I've heard from a number of people as well,
0: sort of being like, either do you know do you know a good church yeah. because I'd like to still try one, or um, what should I look for and what should I look out for, you know. Um, if I'm because it's you know it it's very daunting perhaps if you've been really you know if you've had a very difficult experience you know I have a huge amount of admiration for people who are willing to try again because that's not the easy road in that sense and and it's un- I I, I empathise and have deep understanding for those who choose not to like I you know I can't blame them for that at all um, but for those who who do do you have any um, I guess it, but we, I get this question a lot and I'm always like, yeah, we'll talk about that at some point and I never quite know what to say. So now I'm here with you. Uh, I can ask you. But, you know, what would your advice be to someone who's, who's trying to find a faith community where they feel like perhaps it, it might not be as be as wounding as, as the experience yeah. they've had? That's
1: a, it's, it's a really good question. This is me engaging in radio stall. Good, good (laughs) question, mate. That's a really good question. Should we put that out to our callers? (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I think, I mean, I think you could probably, again, not everybody has to read what I wrote, but I think you could go through the article that I wrote um, Mm -hmm. on Arise, uh, theology and culture, and you could look at some of the headlines and go, okay, these are some things that I'm going to look out for. The distance of the leader, how distant is the leader and how much is the leader honored? Not that leaders should be treated like rubbish or Mm -hmm. your pastors should be treated like rubbish. uh, But I think if you can tell, if they're they're a full-blown celebrity and people are excited because they get to get their photo taken with them, there's probably some issues here. Looking at their theological training, Mm -hmm. uh, I think is really important too. And I think... um, you can look around New Zealand and there's there, there are some theological institutions that I'd say if they've got their theological training from there you you're probably in reasonable territory, not, not fail-safe for any of them, but I think uh, the likes of Laylor, I think of Otago, mm. I think of uh, Kerry, uh, I think about some of what's going on with St. John's at the moment, with the Anglicans. Like You can look at those and you can probably go, okay, it's probably fairly solid theological training, um, not just in how to think about the Bible, but thinking about spiritual formation and pastoral care mm. uh, as well. So there's going to be a different mode of, of thinking. I think looking at at who whose voices make it to the stage stage yeah who who who's being heard in this community? Uh, are there multiple voices from multiple places making it in here, having some form of influence? look at their sense of governance, look at their values and their their priorities. Uh, again, it's never fail safe. and I think a lot of people have been trained to. Consume church's entertainment. Mm. I think once you take that off the table and you don't need the great band anymore, the music doesn't need to be amazing, your preacher doesn't need to be phenomenal, the gates open very wide on what you can experience. I had a Sunday off, uh, the Sunday after Easter. It's called Low Sunday in the church calendar. Uh, And it's not because there's hardly any any people present on that Sunday after Easter. It's for other reasons in the liturgical calendar. But I went to my local Anglican church just around the corner from me. I walked in the door. There was hardly anybody there. I sat down the back anonymously. Uh, The singing was absolutely dreadful, and I loved it, Uh, just because it wasn't trying to be anything. Mm. These were people who were just trying to sing to God. And so it didn't matter that it was dreadful. Uh, there was a liturgy to guide the thing. So the personality of the person up the front actually did not matter. Mm. Uh, there was a liturgy. There was a, it was effectively guided. And a liturgy, a good liturgy is just guided prayer. So I could participate in that. Uh, and then I left at the end, said hello to someone, walked out, and that was... It was that. But because I didn't need to be entertained, I was I was looking for something completely different. I just wanted to pray with a community and worship with a community. Uh, I could step into that space, and it didn't need to be phenomenal. So I yeah. think dealing to some of those <laughs> expectations as well is really healthy. So the challenge
0: there is is not just to leaders of churches, is it? Yeah. This is to communities as well, to, to, to participants in church life. Yeah. To ask ourselves those questions also because, you know, the— the, the proliferation of a certain kind of space, which is running into a number of the problems, you know, all around the place that, that we've been talking about and that you've written about and that we've been hearing about. Um, they only succeed because we all go for the, you know, we we love the the, the buzz and the vibe and the entertainment to some degree. That's part, of, at least a part of why they, mm. they work so well, um, other than just selling a really kind of simple, inspirational self-help message. Uh so I guess the challenge to, to the wider church conversation perhaps at the moment out of all of this is to say, okay, we all need to think about the nature of church community yeah, and what, it should, what should sit at the heart of that and what should be important about that for us and yeah. what we should want kind of quote-unquote out of it in that sense.
1: And I think to uh, probably challenge ourselves to in some circles around what it means to believe in the presence of God. Um, like I believe God is, God's spirit is present at work everywhere all the time. And it's just about where my attention is. Am I listening? Am I engaging in it? And am I I participating with the Spirit? Am I celebrating it? Am I naming it where it's appropriate? So I could walk, like you hear people talking about the music time in some churches and how present God is. And the more emotive the experience is, the more it feels like God is present. Mm. He's not more present. He's just as present there as he is in that awkward Anglican church that is struggling with their singing. So when I walked into that Anglican church, it was with a palpable idea that God is present here. Mm. And all I need, this is just about me turning my attention in that direction to take note of the distractions that have turned me away from that and to reimagine God's story in my life in that moment. That can take place anywhere. So again, mm. if you take off the table the idea that God is more palpably present if I am bored into this amazing emotional experience was not bad or wrong necessarily. That can be nice to have. Yeah, but the gates open way more in Mm. terms of what you can engage with in a community. Uh, So all of us, all of us need to ask those questions. Mm. Um, In terms of uh, your
0: own church community then, and um, you've, you've spoken a little bit about that already, but as we're sort of thinking about, you know, finding a, finding a community and, and how do we build kind of healthy communities and, and what are some alternative shapes to what they could look like? What sort of values have, I, th- I think you've hinted at a number of those already, but what values are shaping the way you are building y- your church community? And, you know,
1: perhaps what are the, what are the challenges that, that come with that as well? Yeah, yeah. Uh, let, me, let me read out to you our official values that appear in our local church constitution. And that some of these will sound really normal. Um, in a church setting, but the way that we've explained it, hopefully, will convey something of who we are. So, our four values are uh, worship, uh, simplicity, which is a big one for us, hospitality, and mission, which everybody, maybe apart from the simplicity one, would go, Oh, yeah, well, of course. Mm. Uh, worship. We value worship as the central element of who we are. Worship is the space where we place our lives before God, recognizing His place, our place, and allowing Him to shape us. Our worship is contemplative, sacramental, and shared with one another. Central to our worship, both communally and individually, are the practices of prayer, scripture reading, and gathering for Holy Communion. We wanted to crack the back of the idea that music is mm. worship. That actually, if you, if you read that, worship is something that takes place everywhere. So we're partly teaching people how to worship wherever they are, mm. teaching them rhythms of worship in their own spaces. So everything that goes on in our Sunday service, you could replicate in your home. We teach silence, the repetition of the liturgy week after week after week, then gives you prayers that you're probably going to remember, and you can use those in your own spaces. Simplicity. In a busy world, we value learning to tune into the presence of God and the ordinary experiences of life, enabling people to reduce the noise in order to tune into the still small voice of God. And amongst the noise, we value quiet, not simply as a sound experience, but as a way of being, learning to find calm in the midst of our everyday lives. For this reason, we as a local church will not add to the busyness of life. Rather, we seek to be a sacred sanctuary, where people can take a breath, unite with God and each other, and be recreated by the transforming grace of the Spirit. In our servant leader meetings, effectively an eldership, we get given ideas all the time for what we could be doing as a church community. We could run this program. We could do mm. that thing. Why don't we do that thing? All really worthwhile. Most of it we end up having to say no to because if God truly is at work everywhere all the time, then that means he's at work in your workplace He's at work in your friendship circles. He's at work in your neighborhood, with your family. So then everything that we do, again, is about helping you engage with whatever God is up to in that space, in your normal, ordinary, everyday life, which means that we cannot do things that monopolize people's time. Mm. All we're doing is enabling them to connect with that. Uh, Hospitality, Christ-embodied hospitality, welcoming all to the table of God. As we are united with God and shaped towards holiness, so we, with no discrimination, invite all others to that table. As Christ's hospitality has been extended to us, so we value hospitality and extend it to others in whatever ways we are able. So that plays out in our communal space. Everybody is welcome to, and the chief symbol of that is everybody's welcome to the table of Holy Communion. But it also means that our we want our people extending hospitality where they are. Mm. Not to get people to come along to church, but just because that's what you do. Mm. Um, And the last one is mission. And I love helping people rethink this one. Mm -hmm. And on our website, it says, in our life of worship, simplicity and hospitality, we are shaped to tune into the presence and activity of the spirit throughout the world, constantly redeeming all of creation. We value recognizing that work, giving voice to it, celebrating it and connecting with it, embodying the gospel in our words and actions. This to me Deals to the idea of uh, status in our churches, and I've still got people who think that in order to have a meaningful Christian life, they need to serve the institution of the church, our organisation, in some way. But if this sense of mission is correct, then we are all engaged in the work of God in our vocation, wherever it is, whatever we are up to. So those those are our those are our values. Yeah. Um, You'll also see, if you come on a Sunday, uh, us engaging in a conversation around the gospel passage from the Revised Common Lectionary, as we follow the three-year liturgical cycle. And so we're in uh, the Gospel of Luke uh, this year. And everybody gets to have their say, if they're confident enough to pipe to pipe up, and then I'm essentially just managing a talkback show <laughs> with my people. But that what that conveys is that Scripture is communal, that we engage in this together, right. and that everybody's voice is important as we learn to interpret this and live this out uh, together. So hopefully, over time, that deals to the idea that this is Frank and his wife's project and we're just helping them do it, to this is us. Mm. And as you seek to...
0: Work that out, yeah. right, and explore it together. Uh, what do you notice is, you know, in, in real terms, kind of what are the what are the challenges or the opportunities that that open up to you in in holding space in that
1: kind of way? Yeah, I think the biggest challenge is just the church way of understanding church that we've all been steeped in. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the constant push to create vision, mission, and strategy. Uh, yeah, <laughs> we live by a set of values. And I think in our local church constitution, as a Wesleyan Methodist church, I wrote a vision statement at the beginning. I can't remember what that is. <laughs> I never talk about that. We don't have a, a mission statement. Uh, I have to report quarterly on um, on our numbers. Uh, and I understand why as someone who sits on our national council, but man, it grates. And then when mm. pe- when new people turn up, no matter what their experience, they've got expectations of what church life should be. I remember sitting in uh, one of our people's places for lunch after church on a Sunday. And it was a group of them who'd come from other places and uh, they really loved the simplicity. Uh, I don't think they realized that the simplicity comes because I've said no to a lot of, <laughs> we've said no to a lot of stuff. And they, they loved it. They loved that we didn't do all these things. But then very subtly it went around the room. They all suggested things that we could be doing. Yeah. And I walked around the room and found various ways to say no. Uh, my wife noticed that, so we had the conversation afterwards. But those constant expectations. Yeah. I'm a pretty orthodox guy too. But because we're a, we're a landing space for people who have been burnt and are tentative on faith and really feel a lot of the social issues that are going on at the moment, I have to navigate that relatively carefully. And mm. I, feel, I feel the pressure of, personally, of holding people's faith journey. It's not mine to hold, but I do. Mm. Uh, I feel that. And so I think we've got some people who may be drifting away because of the pandemic. I feel that, just like I think every minister would, but because we're a small community, uh, every single person makes a difference when they come in. Yeah. They impact the the life of the community in some way. So then moving away to or drifting away, that has an effect on the community in a way that it wouldn't if we were really big and people just kind of came and went, mm. uh, unless they're in a full like, leadership position. So I I feel that. Uh, I feel the weight of wanting this to be a a true communal thing. So I feel the weight of uh, wanting to get to the point where it doesn't need me. Mm -hmm. Uh, And because we're still relatively young, there's still a big sense that it needs me. So part of my project at the moment is to work us to a point where I could walk away and it it would survive and thrive. Um, So that's my next five-year project, Hmm. I think. (laughs) I think it's it's important in in
0: that sense. To, I think to talk about the challenges because I think we have to grapple with those challenges, um, lest we like like you find deal with oh we're trying to do something different, but everybody comes in wanting us to still sort of liking the different, but still wanting us to be able to lay on the things that maybe they're used to expecting in a in a particular space. Yeah. Um, and there can be a kind of a sometimes a, a an idealism about what that community is going to look like, and so if we can move away from the kind of consumer mentality of we're delivering you a, a little yep. package for you to consume, then, then that will, of course, open us up to challenge, mm. to inefficiency, to, you know, working things out together in, re, in real community. Uh, but but there's something kind of beautiful and meaningful to me in, in all of that. Um, perhaps as a way to, to finish. Uh, thinking about the last six months, which... <clears throat> has been a time for lots of people who have been in any way connected to uh, these conversations to the stories that have been coming out where do you kind of honestly find yourself if you were to sort of describe your um you know if you do do you feel um despair about the state of the church do you feel anger about it do you feel hopeful about it do you feel where, where would you be on the emotion meter uh, in relation to kind of how you feel about where you know, about all of this, and, and and um and what's kind of going, what's coursing through your veins as you as you engage in this whole conversation.
1: There's probably a number of emotions that are hold in tension together. Mm. Uh, of course, sadness and despair, because anybody's hurt anybody's burn, anybody's horrid experience in the church, just it's not the way that it's meant to be. so i I carry the weight of that. That sadness and having been relatively close to some of those stories now, uh, knowing that some people have walked away from faith, that that burns. I, as a as a minister, as someone who, who loves Jesus, I, that causes me despair and sadness. But then I fully believe in God. I fully believe in Jesus. I fully believe in the Church. The the Church is the body of Christ, and when. Jesus, uh, when they're at um, Caesarea Philippi, and uh, Peter declares Jesus as the Messiah, and there's the line Jesus busts out about the gates of Hades. This is the this is the church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Like there's a, there, there's ways that gets used in kind of warfare language that I that I'm not into, but it the resilience it speaks to me of the resilience of the church, and that God will get what God wants uh, eventually. And then I get to participate in that. So there's part of me that sees what's going on as entirely hopeful. I think the church in New Zealand needs to dramatically shift. And mm. I think that's that's taking place. I think, uh, and I explain this sometimes by, this is going to be slightly long-winded, but I uh, I think back to the Billy Graham visits to New Zealand back in the 50s and 60s. Yeah. Filling stadiums and then guilting people into getting across the, yeah. the line. Like he, Billy Graham was a nice guy, but if you go back and listen to his messages, they're pretty full on. Um, But he filled stadiums like because New Zealand at the time, largely, there were lots of people who didn't believe it, but largely people were working from the same narrative, the same rough idea Mm -hmm. about the world and how the world works, and they just needed to be pushed over the line. Fast forward a number of decades... We don't hold that cultural power anymore about how people understand the world, about how people view the whole thing. I, in my media work, have the wondrous uh, ability to know how Christians are communicating in the background to a lot of our journalists. There's a lot of assumptions being made about what those journalists think and how they understand things and how they see the world. They're getting scripture quoted at them. They're telling them that they're going to burn in hell. Uh, the good versus the evil story. Mm. There's the assumption on the from the people communicating that that we're all working from the same basic story. That is not the case. We are losing, if we have not lost, our cultural power and that is a good thing. Yeah. I think the decline of the church in New Zealand is actually somewhat of a healthy thing because it helps us to then reprioritize, to go, what does it mean to follow the suffering savior? Mm. What does it mean to follow the servant and to take that on ourselves? And there's things that go along with that that I don't like, but I think that's good. And I think what we're seeing is the shake of that power again. And we'll continue to journey to being a group that doesn't have a lot of power, it needs to think about what it means to love, bless, and serve, and live with people who see the world entirely different from us. And I have real hope for that, which I know a lot of people will feel a lot of despair about. Yeah, <laughs> it's funny, isn't it? That, that what you're hopeful for in terms of the church
0: finding its finding itself again in many respects does not look at all, if we use our kind of typical metrics in, in terms of what is measured successful church or yeah. meaningful church. You know, it, it's... Um, some people are like, you know, can the church change? And if so, yes, and won't that be great? Because then we can grow all these amazing churches <laughs> that will be huge and stadiums will be filled with people turning yeah. to Jesus, you know. And actually, you know, if, if we do take the opportunity to change, that's not necessarily the trajectory that's going to take us down. Yeah. Um, do you, how, um, how hopeful are you that that the church at large will Will take seriously, you know, because the, these these kinds of space, there's certain kinds of spaces that have been held up as the exemplars of what everybody should be trying to shoot for, and everybody goes off to these conferences and learns how to be more like whoever the particular cream of the crop is at that time, or whoever's running the exciting conference. Um, and so there's been a there's been a cultural thing going on in the church that says that's what. Many people, not not everyone, by by any stretch, but certainly people in that kind of contemporary Pentecostal evangelical space have been shooting for. Um, this is essentially a challenge and an invitation to change course in that respect. How hopeful are you that
1: that uh, the that the church can do that? Oh, very, very actually. Okay. and it, because of what I was seeing taking place before the pandemic, in my mind, the perfect marriage in the church is between Pentecostal liturgical, sacramental, old-school, traditional. You bring those two things together, uh, you get a very thoughtful, rich expression of the faith. And I could see that going on in pockets before the pandemic hit. So you had Pentecostal pastors increasing their training and discovering some of this stuff over here. Or you had the shift of ministers moving into who are coming from more evangelical pentecostal charismatic backgrounds moving across into those spaces and taking their uh, their palpable sense of the the work of the spirit in the world into those more traditional spaces i think that is the perfect marriage getting back to the wisdom that has developed in the church over 2000 years and bringing that together I think what we're seeing at the moment is just shaking that a whole lot more. And it's causing a whole lot more churches and ministers and people sitting in pews to go, oh, that thing that we we're shooting for, the veil's been lifted somewhat. It's not what we thought it was. What else can we be looking at? What else can we do here? And I think the sp- the push to spiritual formation and discipleship and the feedback that I've got to everything I've done over the last little while is people taking that a whole lot more seriously. Okay. Uh, the feedback has been great. So it gives me great hope that we're going in the direction that we need to be going in. That doesn't mean that churches aren't going to hit the headlines for the wrong things, uh, but I think by and large we're moving in the right direction.
0: Well, it's nice to hear someone say that. <laughs> so... Uh... So I'll uh, every on the days when I uh, um, uh, got despair, I'll have to give you a phone call, and you can give me a shot of a shot of hope. <laughs> uh, one of the things about this kind of work, right, is that you just hear you just hear so yeah. many devastating stories from people. Yeah, and and do you find yourself going, "Gosh, are we are we even able to to to
1: be anything close to what we would hope? What I
0: hope the church yeah. would be, you know?
1: Now I'm I'm realistic. I think it's going to result in continued church numbers decline, mm. because I think once when we marry those things together that I just mentioned, that looks really weird from the outside. And we get mm-hmm. away from those seeker-sensitive environments that just looks to excite people, uh, and so our numbers go down, but we're left with something that is, I think, a much deeper, richer expression of the body of Christ. I think about um, Jesus, John six, when he's uh, talking about being the body and the blood, and I think he's a, I think he's a perfect example there of what it means to do some of this stuff. He's got a big crowd, and so he starts speaking in a way that they really don't understand. They just don't get it, and there are people who claim to follow. Uh, God, But they just don't get what it is that he's saying. And he ends up offending a whole bunch of them and he gets left with this much smaller group that take it really seriously. And he says, where are you going to go? Nowhere, you've got the words of life. Uh, So we're going to stick around. I think that's the the phase that we're heading into. And we're not going to get that decline because we just offended a whole stack of people. Like I think there's a justification going on too we're just offending a whole lot of people who don't who don't yeah. believe. I think we're going to get there because what we're doing in our midst doesn't look as exciting as uh, some people would want it to be. You just want to consume, but you're going to have to take it a whole lot more seriously. Yeah, when he said "blessed are the persecuted," he didn't mean those who are persecuted for
0: just being dicks.
1: Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No. Just because you offended someone and they got offended, yeah. doesn't mean that you're following Jesus well. Yeah. Um.
0: That's great, Frank. Thank you so much for this conversation, and and thank you for uh, the work you've been doing this year. I have heard from numerous people who have been so deeply grateful for for what you have contributed to the space, uh, especially with your work, uh, obviously, on on the review or the report that that you've published. Uh, and I and I am hopeful, if I am hopeful, that that in New Zealand, you know, what the work you've done this year will be taken seriously. Uh, I can see that it already is and in some spaces. I hope that continues. Uh, and and I know from a number of people who have suffered within, within some of these spaces over the last few years uh, have found some respite and some hope in the work that you've done. So I want to say thank
1: you for that. And... Um, Thank you, mate. And I just want to very quickly respond with some thanks as well. Thanks to you for the work that you've done through this period as well. I've heard from a lot of people who have, you've given them the ability to process what's gone on for them and you've given them language. Um, I've heard from lots of people who have reflected that. I also want to deeply thank, because I know a lot of them are listening to your podcast, I want to deeply thank those people who have been hurt and burned out and have had the courage to tell their stories. Uh, There are many of them. And I know that in the work we did officially for Rise, we effectively only scratched the surface of the wider story of the church in New Zealand, how many people have felt hurt. So I want to thank everybody who put themselves on the line to share their stories and have done so this year. Everybody who has engaged in some form of hope. One of the things I've, I've loved seeing is the sense of redemption and reconciliation, the desire for healing that a lot of those people could have expressed when they could have just wanted to see the whole thing burned down. Mm-hmm. I also want to thank, and I know a lot of people aren't seeing this, I want to thank all those people in Arise specifically who have got in touch with the likes of myself, who get the need for change, who have expressed their thanks, who feel the pain of what has happened, who want to see change, who truly love Jesus. That's the untold story going on at the moment. And I have no idea where it is going to land, but the fact that there are so many people in the midst of it who recognize the reality of this, who mm-hmm. want to be faithful to Jesus, gives me a lot of hope for them as well. Thanks. Thanks for that. Um,
0: You've got a website where people can go to read your work as well as um, the the review, uh, the reflection, yeah. whatever, what the, the theological and cultural reflection. Um, what's what's that website address just for people?
1: Yeah, I don't use it very often anymore because I use Patreon and I, this is why I, I had to deal with an accusation that I only wrote that thing so I could get Patreon supporters. If I did, I did it in a really stupid way because I'm not going to tell you where my Patreon is. But if you go to francis com, you can access that big article for free. Uh, I'd also encourage people to check out the, the other work that I do with a, an amazing team. If you go to mediachaplaincy.nz, you can see what we do in that space. And you can listen to a couple of podcasts as well featuring some of New Zealand's best journalists. And you'll discover how wonderful those people really are. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you. So there you go,
0: a conversation with the Reverend Frank Ritchie. Uh, my thanks to Frank for joining me uh, on the podcast for a chat. I'm sure that if you're interested in trying to find a way through and, and discern what we might do in this present moment, then you'll have found that conversation to be a helpful contribution to that. Thanks, as always, to Reese Michelle for taking the podcast audio that I give him and making it sound good in your ears. Until next time.